the restoration shifted from, you know, trying to cobble and fill these missing frames to, okay, how do we use as much of this nitrate print from Brussels as we can? And how do we take the subtitles out of the image in a way that is not going to leave any artifacts or be distracting for viewers in any way? Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. What does it take to restore an older film in 4K for video release? We'll dig deep into the work of the archives to find out, as I talk with Jack Feekston about Kino Lorber's release of the first three-strip Technicolor feature, Becky Sharp, and Mike Pogorzelski and Heather Linville, the team behind the restoration of the ultimate no-budget noir, Detour, out March 19th from Criterion. Remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes to help other people find out about us, too. Thanks, pal. I owe you one. This episode is about restoring films for home video release. But Mike, you say, that's what most episodes are about. Well, yeah. But I happen to do two interviews where we really dug into the nitty-gritty of rescuing a film and preserving it for present and future generations. Beyond that, the two films we're talking about began with little enough in common. One's a lavish period piece hoping to popularize a new film technology. The other was a no-budget noir. Yet the challenges their restorers faced were surprisingly similar. As it says about people of the past at the end of Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, based on a novel by William Makepeace Thackeray, good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all equal now. Here is the screen as you now know it in its customary shades of black and white. Here it is flooded with the rich reality of natural color. This specially prepared scene of Miriam Hopkins as Becky Sharp shows her transformed from phantom shadows into the breathless beauty of living color by the greatest achievement in motion pictures since the advent of sound. 1935's Becky Sharp, adapted from William Makepeace Thackeray's novel Vanity Fair, made a place in film history as the first three-strip Technicolor feature. Then it dropped out of film history until Bob Gidd at UCLA led efforts to restore it in the 1990s and 2000s. A new 4K transfer building on that restoration will be released in April by Kino Lorber. Jack Feekston is a professional projectionist in New York City, a freelance film historian, and part of the 3D Film Archive team restoring and releasing 3D films, which we talked about here at Nitrateville Radio in 2017. He'll also contribute the commentary track for Kino Lorber's release of Becky Sharp. So I asked him to start by telling us how he got that gig. Basically, the way that I got this gig was when 
we were doing stuff through Kino for the 3D Film Archive, they found that my audio commentaries on a couple of these discs were actually selling discs in themselves um, because people had either read stuff that I'd written or they were into it. So Frank Tarzi at Kino approached me about doing audio commentaries for general stuff. He said, can you do, you know, not 3D stuff? And I said, yeah, of course. You know, I'm, I'm not just 3D. You know, Have like you seen a facet. flat film before, Jack? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> flat films, they'll never, they'll never last. And so we started with uh, Road to Morocco, which I recorded in January. And uh, that was a lot of fun. You know, it's one of my favorites. So uh, I had, you know, no shortage of things to talk about about that. And then I saw that on the list, you know, he gave me a list I could cherry pick titles off of. And uh, I saw Becky Sharp was coming up and I grabbed it immediately because, you know, outside of, you know, 3D, like I said, it's just one facet of what I do. My major interest, you know, my big niche is motion picture technology in general. You know, I'm a projectionist. I've been a cameraman. You know, I ran the Capitol for six years and all these things like the technological, the gears and, and things are the, 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 the stuff. I'm a real gearhead. So that's the sort of stuff I'm into. And Technicolor. I worked for the company. I uh, know the process in and out. I knew the history of the film. So it was a really dense script. I think I, I wrote like 29 pages to read for this uh, commentary. So, uh, you, you know, ask away as far as any questions <laughs> you want on the, on the title or Technicolor in general. Well, so how do you do that for, for a film? I mean, if you write 29 pages, how do you know what's going to match up with what people are watching at all? So they send me a screener of the film, and it's got a time code on it. And I will sit down and watch the film for the first time with the time code running, and I'll uh, stop it and make notes of the time code of whatever it is I want to talk about during that period. So it's very more useful with things like whenever an actor comes on the screen for the first time and I want to give a biographical sketch about them. In this case, there were like three of the lead stars coming one another on screen, like within a full 10 minutes. So I had to crank out Miriam Hopkins bio, um, Francis D and Nigel Bruce always in the span of about nine or 10 minutes. So there's a little bit of a trick there, but I found that if I write the script out at courier size, 12 single space, <laughs> that one page is about three minutes of me talking. Okay. So, so I'll time this stuff out. You know, I, you know, I, I, I refine it after I've gotten all the, the, the meat and potatoes timed out. Then when they run it back in the studio and I've got these great, you know, I've been doing these commentaries at Gramercy Post, which is in um, Midtown Manhattan, and they are just the best because they if I mess up while I'm reading, they can roll it back and then I can just pick up where I left off, you know, and it's really fast and quick. Well, yeah, let's talk about Technicolor in general. I mean, you know, Becky Sharp obviously was Technicolor's big breakthrough film, even though I would say it still wasn't a box office benefit that much in the 30s yeah the uh becky sharp you know was not a financial success when it came out uh the film cost about nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars to make and at last estimates in variety it had grossed something like six hundred and forty thousand dollars at the box office but the point of it was 
you know, with any film, you want to make money. But the point of it was to sell Technicolor as a, a feasible thing in uh, features. Uh, the main benefactor at the time and the, and the guy who was the main producer of this film was uh, Jock Whitney, who was a major millionaire at the time. Most people remember him today for uh, museums, including the museum in his name. But uh, he was interested in color photography. He uh, met Herbert Kalmus, who was the head of Technicolor at uh, the Saratoga Springs Racetrack. And they both had a mutual friend who was Marion C. Cooper at RKO. And Cooper really sold Whitney on the idea of doing color pictures. And so what they did was they set up this company called uh, Pioneer Pictures that was going to do exclusively three-strip Technicolor features and shorts. And they shot in uh, 1934 a test run. And that was a short subject, a two-reeler called La Cucaracha. And it was a huge success. That that film was as much a success as Becky Sharp was a failure in many ways. <laughs> so they greenlit it and, and pressed forward on Becky Sharp. That started rolling in uh, late 1934. Uh, the original director of the film was Lowell Sherman, who actually died about two weeks into the production. He contracted pneumonia during the uh, production, but still kept pressing on. You know, he didn't want to stop the production and it ended up killing him uh, just short of the end of the year. And uh, RKO and uh, Whitney really scrambled to find somebody as a replacement. And fortunately, and actually kind of serendipitously, they got uh, Ruben Mamoulian, who at that point had only done, I think it was about seven films, feature films before this. But of course, he had a great uh, history on the stage. He had... Uh, he started in Russia and uh, continued directing in England before he was brought to Broadway. And I think one of the main production or the main production that he was doing before he started becoming a film director was the stage version of, of Porgy. And then right after he did Becky Sharp, uh, he directed the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. Well, let's talk about, I mean, Becky Sharp is the vehicle for this. What was it that appealed to them about the uh, the Thackeray novel, um, which one has to say is is about a, it's not, you know, your usual sort of female soap opera thing, because Becky's kind of a bad person. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's an odd choice. Um, and even odder is that the, it had kind of been, yeah obviously been remade several times previously, but uh, just a few years before they, uh, a uh, Poverty Row producer produced a version of it in black and white with Myrna Loy. Hmm. It's an interesting pick. It wasn't their first. Uh, their first choice, or at least the first announcement, was they were going to do a version of The Three Musketeers uh, with uh, Francis Lederer in it. And I think they realized that that was going to be a little too ambitious, especially because a lot of it would have taken place on exteriors. That project eventually was made at RKO, but it was made in black and white. And they also were throwing around uh, Last Days of Pompeii, I think was another title. And I think a lot of that had to do with Whitney had just taken, I believe it was a honeymoon or some <laughs> sort of trip with his wife to Pompeii and was inspired by it. But uh, Vanity Fair is an interesting subject matter to be produced in this fashion. I mean, it's it's funny because it's very satirical. It's satirical of old England in a certain way that even in the 20th century, I'm not sure everyone was going to quite be able to get. 
for a very 19th century England novel. Uh, the setting is very Dickensian. And because of it, you think middle middle uh, 19th century England is not what you would particularly consider colorful. You know, there's a lot of uh, dirt and ash and things like that floating around during that time. But with aristocracy, I guess it kind of makes sense. And in a way, it was thought of as a good costume picture and with the right cast. And it's got a spectacular cast. Um, they really sell it. And it's funny because when I first saw the film, I didn't think much of it. But also when I first saw the film, it was kind of a degraded version of it. And then I saw the UCLA restoration of the film in the early 2000s when they ran it on TCM. But the video transfer that they did of it wasn't particularly good. And I still wasn't really into the film. It wasn't until I saw this new HD that comes from a 4K restoration version of it. I, I really enjoy the picture. I think it's really witty. It's really charming. And it's got, like, like I said, even without the color, it's got a really great cast that really sells it. Becky Sharp herself is not particularly a nice character, although you do sort of empathize with her at points. Hopkins really sells it. I mean, she's great in it. And that was her persona at the time in film. She, she'd worked with Mamoulian previously on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And uh, her character in that is basically a prostitute. Right. She had a kind of a reputation in film already as a bad girl. Uh, Story of Temple Drake is obviously kind of the flip side to that. But, you know, the degradation of a woman. And uh, so she, she really plays it to the hilt. And it's a juicy role for her. It works. Um, Francis D plays her sidekick Amelia and she's nice and virginal and pure in contrast to Becky. And so obviously D doesn't have a lot to do in the film, but she's very good and, and uh, memorable. Um, I think the standout in the film for me, the two standouts other than Hopkins is, uh, Nigel Bruce as, uh, one of her suitors, uh, <laughs> really a versatile actor who I think most people remember best now as uh, Watson in the Sherlock Holmes series, but he was a really good British stage actor. And then of course, uh, Sir Cedric Hardwick who plays Stain, the Marquis de Stain in the film. I mean, he's just gloriously uh, like slimy in the film and yeah. <laughs> his, his, his performance is really terrific. Yeah. Just one of those things like, what did you think was going to happen when Anna Karenina married Basil Rathbone? You know, it's like, yeah, no, there's no, just no way is going this to is come gonna, from this. It's going to go. It's anywhere. only going to end in tears. One of the things I he always heard about Mamoulian and I didn't know how early this developed was like, if he thought a shot needed a little more of a particular color, you know, we need some green here. Uh, he just had this trunk of scarves and things that he he would find something and throw it into the into the shot. Now I wonder if that was something that had come even from the, his stage days that he was manipulating color pretty seriously. Then it's possible. Uh, the the other thing too is as much as Mamoulian had his own ideas about color in the film, the main color designer of the film and and kind of the second director almost in a way is Robert Edmund Jones who is a famous uh, set designer. He's kind of considered the grandfather of set design. He wrote a number of uh, books in the 1910s and 20s that are still used as reference to this day. He was brought on by Whitney and Cooper. He was actually the art director for Radio City Music Hall at the time, which was 
obviously owned by RKO, so they stayed in their own company pool. And Radio City was actually where Becky Sharp had its uh, world premiere. Jones was a, a very uh, versatile director. His his big thing was he was kind of the uh, transitioning point between the sort of traditional stage sets where they were mostly painted flats and backdrops and that sort of thing, and experimenting with minimalism, but also realism. Very fascinating guy. Uh, he had some really specific ideas about color too. And I think he and Mamoulian really got along well. I think they both spoke each other's language. The person that did not go over too well on the set, however, was uh, Herbert Kalmus's wife, Natalie Kalmus, who was brought on as all Technicolor pictures from that period as a, uh, as a Technicolor consultant. Uh, when you, when you got the Technicolor cameras, you also got Natalie Kalmus to go with it. Uh, you'd also get somebody like Ray Renahan, who was a real photographer and, and could really tell you kind of what Natalie was supposed to be telling you, which was like how things would photograph in Technicolor, what it would look like when printed. But she had her very specific ideas about uh, color coordination. She'd been a former art student. And uh, I think just about every single time I've heard mention of her on a set. It's never been a good mention. You know, she was considered, you know, kind of a pest. Well, and it's it's very clear when you watch, say, two strip Technicolor versus three strip Technicolor. I mean, they mm -hmm. were very interested in showing off what the three strip could do that the two strip could not. You had pure blues, you had pure whites, you know, you had yellow, all those things that fell outside that sort of, you know, teal orange spectrum. And yeah, and I think up until the point where they started doing three strip shows, uh, the two color stuff, they let kind of the uh, studio art directors take over on a lot of things. And so there's never, first off, with the, the two-color rig, there's never, or the way it was printed anyway, there's there's never any real pure black and white. It always comes off as kind of a, a sepia color to begin with. Right. So it's like a sepia tone image with splashes of red and green throughout uh, the image. With the new Technicolor, and, and by new, I mean, it wasn't just... Uh, the three strip camera that was new. It was they they really retooled the printing process around the same time as they rolled out this three strip rig too. Things were a lot more dense, and uh, with the obviously the full spectrum of color, you could do anything. You know, whereas you were limited in the two color spectrum, but also they were sharper prints. They were clearer. Uh, they didn't have as much. Uh, fringing or grain uh, you look at reviews from the period and i think technicolor's biggest downfall in the early 30s is they had a good process uh but and especially with the dye transfer process they had a, a great idea but they weren't able to keep up with the runs that they needed to print up so it was it was uh they sacrificed quality for quantity. I guess we should, we should really start by talking about how three strip Technicolor worked, which is essentially you produced three black and white images through three color filters mm -hmm. and then combined those in the dye transfer process, which I've heard described as being sort of similar to silk screening, which I don't know if that helps explain it's, it to me or not. 
I would I would compare it more to uh, lithography, okay, or or rubber stamps almost. Um, so let's uh, back up to the camera. Uh, the original camera that they use for the two color stuff uh, sometimes is referred to as two strip, but it's kind of an uh, an error because they used one strip of film. It was actually one black and white strip of film that ran through the camera at double speed. And then they had a prism that split one frame into two onto the film. And you'd have a green and a red filter. They went back to the drawing board and realized it would be easier to do a kind of a take on what uh, Cinecolor and Multicolor were doing at the time, which is called BIPAC photography. And that is two strip. You have two strips of film running through the same gate at the same time, and they're emulsion to emulsion. Kodak came up with a, uh, a process in which they would make film that was done in this bipack process. The front strip was orthochromatic, was sensitive to blue and some green light, and then it had a layer of dye on the emulsion itself that was a red color, and that basically worked as a red filter which then went to a panchromatic or all-sensitive, all-light-sensitive film that was right behind it. So Technicolor used this idea, and then at a right angle, they added a third strip that was simply behind a green filter. So you're recording green, red, and blue light all simultaneously at the same time on three strips of film. And this was very uh, useful in that... If they had to do adjustments to separate layers, uh, they could do it later on. But uh, it also meant because it was going through a prism to split one side with two strips and then the one behind it with the one strip, it needed a lot of light. And so you'll often read about these cases on, on the set of Technicolor films where uh, you know, people were sweating and you could actually see steam coming off of them because <laughs> they're using every light that the studio has. Uh, I think somebody wrote on the production of Becky Sharp that the, uh, the amount of electricity that was used on the set for the production could, uh, power, I believe it was Santa Monica for a week <laughs> or something like that. It was a lot of light. So they've got the camera figured out. Technicolor has the camera figured out with the three-strip photography. The printing that we were just talking about is a dye transfer process. And that was actually went back to the 1880s. The French chemist and inventor, Charles Crow, came up with this idea that if you exposed a piece of film to light and then developed it and then used special chemicals, tanners and things like that, that the dark areas you could harden, but the light areas would remain soft. And then using another chemical, you could wash away the light areas. So you'd have basically a relief. It looked like a rubber stamp of the dark areas and its gradients. And uh, if you soaked this in dye and then put that in contact and stamped it onto a blank piece of film, that the, emulsion, the blank emulsion would pick it up and you'd essentially have a dye transfer version of a silver image on gelatin. Well, if you do this, if you can break down the light into three uh, wavelengths, like the three-strip Technicolor camera did, you can essentially do what 
newspapers and lithography does, which is do a cyan record, a magenta record, and a yellow record, and stamp those with those dyes onto the film, and they'll blend together to create a full-spectrum image. This just sounds so insanely complicated. It is. It's, it, it was... It was the work of madmen, but it was also there was high stakes behind this because if you could somehow print a full spectrum color image onto film and be the first one to do it and actually prove that it worked and you could you could make it work in theaters, they stood to make a lot of money. And that's why Technicolor became the most famous name in color in Hollywood throughout 1933 and 34. Kalmus was experimenting with the Technicolor three-strip rig on short subjects, uh, especially industrial films and little commercials and stuff. And it wasn't until 34 where it really starts being implemented as a real possibility in features. So things like House of Rothschild and The Cat and the Fiddle and Kid Millions have these Technicolor sequences, which was kind of common throughout the 20s with the two-color version of it. And Warner Brothers and MGM start doing shorts. Um, if you, you know, most of our listeners have probably seen because they run it on TCM and it's been on DVD, but things like uh, Good Morning Eve and Service with a Smile, with Leon Earl shorts. Yeah. Those are the early three strip Technicolor sort of test shorts. And then, of course, in the middle of this is uh, Whitney and his company and La Cucaracha, which uh, premiered, I believe it was in June or July 1934. And it's erroneously stated as the th- first three-strip Technicolor short, but uh, it's not. But it, it does have an important place in history because it was so popular at the time. So it was treated by RKO as a feature in itself. In fact, one exhibitor wrote that if your film stinks, if your feature film stinks, play <laughs> this because people are going to come out to see this. They actually made a trailer for a two-reel short wow. in Technicolor. That's how big of a success and, and big thing this was at the time. So, yeah, about 20 years ago, UCLA did a big restoration, you know, a historically important film to see what it really looked like. Um, tell me, tell me about that and what's new since then. Uh, the story of the restoration of this film goes back to 1943 and not that the restoration starts there, but the chain of events that lead up to the restoration did Whitney and Selznick have, have now joined forces and Selznick international pictures is the, the uh, pickup off of pioneer pictures and in 1943, they sell the rights to Becky Sharp to a company called Film Classics. And Film Classics is a company that specializes in reissues and mainly for non-theatrical purposes, although some theatrical prints are made. And, and so what instead, was that What was that in the 40s? Because, I mean, I was later non-theatrical in college, but that's even before that really happened. Uh, that would be places like schools, churches, function, you know, basically any place where you weren't charging money or weren't supposed to be charging money to see a film. And so Film Classics brings the color negatives to a company that was at the time Technicolor's leading competitor called Cinecolor. And the reason for this is was probably budgetary concerns, but it also recently dawned on me that 
Technicolor at this point really hadn't perfected making 16 millimeter color prints of their films yet. And that was going to be the way that most of these prints were going to be seen. They were mostly going to be 16 millimeter prints. Cinecolor, however, had and had been for quite a few years up until this point. They take the negatives to Cinecolor and Cinecolor worked, as I mentioned before, by photographing two strips of film in a camera at once. And then they'd print it onto a special stock that Kodak made. It's called Duplitize stock. And it has, instead of one side having an emulsion and one being the base, both sides have an emulsion on it. So it's one base with two emulsions. And this is useful in color printing because then they can expose one side to one color negative and one side to another color negative. And then using this insane, you want to talk about really insane color work and, and <laughs> things that these guys did, they used to literally float the film across a tank of toning chemicals and the surface tank of the film was just enough to let it float on the surface. And while it was on the surface of these chemicals, it would change the black and white silver particles into color particles. So they tone one side cyan and one side uh, red. And when you projected light through this two emulsion image, you got color. It was, it was similar to the two color technicolor, but in that, uh, a little different in that Technicolor used uh, red and green dyes. Cinecolor uses kind of like a Prussian blue, cyan, and uh, uh, red. So you have a little bit of a color spectrum shift. Film Classics and Cinecolor edit this 84-minute film down to 66 minutes. And Cinecolor says, well, we only need two of these negatives. We don't need three of them. So... One of them doesn't get edited, and that would be the blue record. Cinecolor uses the red and the green negatives to print the film. Technicolor, at the same time, had made backups. They're called YCMs. They're uh, positive versions of the black negatives. So they're kind of like prints that are made off of the red, green, and blue negatives in, in case... Should anything ever happen at the lab, like, for example, somebody at Technicolor doesn't thread the printer up properly and or a splice comes loose and breaks the film and tears it, uh, instead of having to slug it with black, which is really undesirable, yeah. you could always go back to the backup elements and make a little section that you then splice in. It's not the best solution, but it's better than nothing. In the late 50s, uh, film Classics sold the film to NTA, National Telefilm Association, I believe that stands for. And by that point, the film was essentially lost in black and white, or not really in a state that anyone wanted to try to retrieve the color. And in the 1970s, Ron Haver was putting together a pretty ambitious Technicolor series at uh, LACMA in L.A., and couldn't find a print of Becky Sharp. Uh, there had been over 250 prints made for the U.S. by Technicolor in 1935. None of them survived. Uh, so Haver kind of went on this quest to try to figure out how to get a print of it, how to restore it. He first went to the AFI, but they didn't really have the money or 
funds and nobody quite knew where the elements to this film were. Then a couple of years later, NTA put all of their elements on deposit at the UCLA Film and Television Archive. And at that point, uh, the preservation officer of UCLA, uh, Bob Gitt, stepped in and he noticed, hey, this is the first three strip Technicolor feature. We ought to do something with it. And between he and Haver got the, the jump start on things. Um, Git brought in Richard Dayton, who uh, who works at uh, YCM Labs. He's the owner there. And with a donation from the National Endowment for the Arts, they had $30,000 to play with to start with it. They started looking at the elements and seeing how they could do it. Uh, so the elements were incomplete at this point. The uh, a couple of reels of the yellow negative had been lost to time or decomposition, and we're not quite sure what happened to them. The cyan and magenta, or rather the red and green negatives, um, were in a state of disarray, uh, but were pretty much covered by backup elements the positives, uh, the yellow positives did not exist anymore, or they were never, I guess, never made. Uh, but these backup elements had were the complete version, the 84 minute version. They also had several prints from around the world. They had a 35 millimeter Cinecolor print that I think was in England. They had some odds and ends that come, came from France. There was an Italian print that at first they didn't think was useful. But then it turned out uh, they could at least use it for the last reel of the film, which was in the worst condition. Uh, there was a Dutch print, but it had subtitles on it. So it was a real mess. Kit and Dayton started messing around with this and seeing what was the best way they could print this film. Kit had this idea that they could print the three strip stuff in contact printing onto a negative and also make prints out of them. And those were the... Uh, revival prints that UCLA distributed for years. They look really good. They look as good as you would expect off of, you know, camera negative and early preprint elements. Uh, and the film was mostly complete. I would say seven out of nine reels were pretty much complete. Uh, in the cases where they were incomplete, UCLA had for one reel or one about one and a half reels worth the two color records. So they printed them up to look kind of like Cinecolor using a red and blue palette. And then when you watch the new Blu-ray, you'll actually see the point in which these kind of jump. And you'll also see some of the edits that they made for the, the reissue because you'll jump from three strip Technicolor to like a two strip quality. And, uh, in the final reel, they had some prints to work with, and it jumped around in quality quite a bit because they, they had a 16 millimeter print that didn't have subtitles, but then they had a 35 millimeter print that did have subtitles and they didn't want the subtitles. So they kind of like cut between the two, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, the end result is the full running time is there, uh, but it's, it's still somewhat lacking in quality in certain sections. Now they did several, revisits to this title i think the last one at ucla was in 2002 and in 2017 i believe it was 
uh, Paramount Pictures acquired the rights to the NTA collection of films. Paramount has like the state of the art facilities. It used to be Warner Brothers was considered like the highest echelon of restoration, but Paramount has really bested them in many ways. They they've uh, the quality of their work is just outstanding. I've seen a number of things that they've done over the past two years with their facility. And it's just, they've got the best people there. I mean, Laura Thornburg is overseeing the whole project or the, all the projects there, and she knows what she's doing. And they're going out of their way to restore these things that, you know, in some cases they don't even own, you know, the public domain, but had some tie to Paramount at some point. And it was at that point that they decided they want to revisit this title and do using the UCLA uh, restoration as the framework, they would do a full 4K workflow on this title. So they went back. Some new elements had surfaced since then, and uh, they went back and, and scanned all the original elements. Uh, the preservation soundtrack negative that Git and his company had made, and uh, the end result is what you'll see on this Blu-ray through Kino Lorber. It's uh, nothing short of stunning. It sounds great. It looks great. It's a charming film. It's got a great cast. And it's if you're a true blue cinephile, it's worth having on your shelf. What do you think about uh, – I mean I think some of the ones where they, they do the color for Blu-ray from the black and white matrices like Wizard of Oz and Adventures of Robin Hood, it's almost – it's too much. There's so much sharpness to it that it's it's even hard to look at, I think, at times. It's a real philosophical quandary. I still have this with a lot of the films that I work on, even when they're not, you know, three-strip Technicolor shows. But you're scanning the original camera negative, and what you're watching on video and in theaters and that sort of thing, and where it's not on film, is the camera negative. You're watching the camera negative. And there are certain things that they knew where the limitations of the printing would come into factor. And so, like, for example, Wizard of Oz. Uh, if you watch the raw, unedited scan from the three strip negatives, you'll see the wire that holds Burt Lars' tail and, and swaggers it around. But if you looked at an original 1939 print, you wouldn't see that because there's an inherent softness that in the printing process came about. You know, the it was never going to be as sharp as the camera negative. So then the philosophical quandary here for a restoration artist is, do you take that out? Yeah, It's there technically on the original negative, but you wouldn't have seen it originally when it was shown. So do you take it out? And I think most folk would say yes for the reason that a you wouldn't see it on the print and b you have to use a little you know common sense here uh if you ask the producer do you want to see the seams and everything you know the director is always going to say no yeah <laughs> any anyone who who argues this point is just being contrarian and and kind of has their head in the clouds i mean any any artist doesn't want their seams to be shown they want it as perfect and believable. And if there's anything that takes you out of the story, of course you would want it erased. 
Well, and I think it's not even just, you know, things that, that fall in the category of mistakes. I just find, I mean, like, there's so much detail in some of the costumes in Robin Hood mm-hmm. that it's like being on Ritalin or something. Your eye is seeing all this fussy, repetitive detail Oh, I know. in a way mean. that kind of takes you out of it. And you compare that to something like Kino released uh, Garden of Allah, which was taken from an actual print. Mm-hmm. And it's got a little bit of that softness to it, and it's very pleasant to look at. It's it's soothing to look at by comparison. Yeah, it's like I said, it's a strange philosophical quandary. I mean, do you leave the detail that's there in? I mean, anal retentive people like me, you know, I love to see <laughs> like every thread, you know. But for me, it's all about pushing the pushing the quality. How far with the quality can you get, and how far with the realism you can get, and then. But I have to say, you know, I have to admit that for someone like me, you always have to step it back a little bit and say, well, but also there's a painting technique and I don't know the term for it is my father would, you know, he was the one who told me about this. But when you're painting a portrait of someone, you put the most amount of detail into the areas where you want to lead the eye. So usually the person's face and their hands and that sort of thing. And then everything else you can kind of pretty much rough in. And that's kind of like the Rembrandt technique. If you look at Rembrandt's paintings, he does this where like the background and people's clothing and stuff like that, that's very rough. It's, it's not, carefully detailed but then when you get to the eyes by the time you get to the eyes it's the lightest part of the area and it's the most meticulously painted all the detail is there so i I get what you're saying and i agree with that you know sometimes things should be a little dumbed down just for the sake of it's distracting to have it so clear but then again i mean you look at uh black and white prints from that period and you'll see every thread. If, if it's a print that's from the camera negative, you'll see every thread on somebody's shirt. Um, or, just down at, or like store signs across the street. You can read them. And yeah, I kind of exactly. love that. Yeah, there's a fun aspect to that. Uh, it doesn't really add anything to the image or the environment. But maybe from a historical standpoint, you can look at it and say, oh, that, that was shot there, you know, or you can see the street name on a, on a street sign or what have you. It's good for John Bankson. Yeah. Yeah. He would, if it weren't for street signs, John would be out of work right now, or he wouldn't have a half the books that he does, I'm sure. But you know, he's great in that he can just pick out and, and this is a tribute to the films. He's got all these really high quality scans now of all these, these movies and you can see every little detail in the background and kind of figure out where things were shot based on the bu- the buildings and the uh, geography and all that sort of stuff. It's uh, They are, as much as they are entertainment, films are a great uh, anthropological document of the time. Our arrangement will be ordered to Benjamin. How terrible. How amusing. The only real thing I have in my life. Don't take that away from me. Don't leave me. You can't leave me. I'm your wife. Come on. Oh. Becky Sharp, starring Miriam Hopkins with Francis B. Cedric Hardwick, Billy Burke, Alison Skipworth, Nigel Bruce, and Alan Mowbray. Directed by Ruben Mamoudian. Designed in color by Robert Edmund Jones. Becky Sharp will be out April 16th from Kino Lorber. 
The Road to Morocco, also with commentary track by Jack Theakston, will be out March 26th. There will be links for both in the show post at nitrateville.com. I was on the highway out near Barstow. My pockets were so flat you could flip an omelet with them. Well, and isn't this just my luck? I check iTunes, and nobody's put up a rating or a review for Nitrateville Radio in a dog's age. Why can't a guy get a break from listeners to his podcast? You'd think they'd have the decency to leave a rating or a review at iTunes to encourage other people to check it out, too. See, the way I figure it is, we're all in this together, trying to grow the audience for classic films so everybody benefits. And when you leave a rating or a review at iTunes, it makes Nitrateville Radio more likely to turn up in some other Joe's recommendations, see? Hey, here comes a sweet honey in a snazzy convertible. Looks like she's in a hurry, too. Maybe today is my lucky day after all. Well, I don't know what's with that guy's attitude. I mean, I love all my listeners, and especially those swell folks who leave comments at iTunes. Now, let's take a detour. On your mind each place you go. I was tussling with the most dangerous animal in the world. A woman. Hey, you! Come on if you want to ride. What's your name? You can call me Vera if you like. It was made in six days at the studio whose very name stood for Poverty Row. PRC. It starred nobody, was directed by a guy booted from a big studio over a dame, and by all rights it should have been forgotten practically by the time the tail started slapping the projector. Instead, a new restoration of 1945's Detour, directed by Edgar Ulmer and starring Tom Neal and Anne Savage, is out March 19th from Criterion, restored by the Academy Film Archive and the Film Foundation, in collaboration with the Cinémathèque Française. It's an unexpected happy ending for the cheapest, most doomed of noirs. Mike Pogorzelski, director of the Academy Film Archive, and film preservationist Heather Linville worked on it together. Heather has since joined the Library of Congress's Packard Center, but fate brought them back together to talk about the wayward journey of Detour. Let's start by just kind of setting the scene for this movie that was made in six days. Uh, at least that's the legend. You may tell me otherwise. But let's start with, with PRC, Producers Releasing Corporation. Um, who were they? Well, the, the studio that released uh, Detour was called PRC. Um, Heather and I were at a screening of Detour with Ariane Ulmer Seitz, the daughter of Edgar Ulmer, who's going to be a prime mover and, and uh, a force to actually get the restoration off the ground. She says that her father referred to it, or I guess even the trades referred to it as, was it Heather? Pretty rotten crap? Yeah, I think that was... <laughs> something crap. I think that's what the acronym was uh, devolved into. Basically, PRC was a Poverty Row studio that was at the very bottom of Poverty Row studios. Um, you know, there were some poverty, you know, quote unquote, Poverty Row studios who had productions that were in the, you know, 250 to $500,000 range. PRC production films typically had a budget of $100,000 or less. 
Um, they exclusively made films for the bottom halves of double bills. Uh, they moved exclusively in the genre territory, so horror films, crime films, comedies, westerns. Um, Edgar Ulmer had made three films at PRC, Strange Woman, Bluebird, Bluebeard, sorry, and Detour. And, um, and PRC was active from, I think, 1939 to roughly 1947. They were purchased by Pathé Industries, and eventually the library, or I'm sorry, the production company arm was folded into Eagle Lion. And actually, a lot of PRC films were among the first ever licensed for television in the early 50s. Uh, I think that PRC's library, as well as some other Poverty Row studio libraries, were the ones to really give the major studios the scare that television would be a competition for them because all of these really cheaply made films were suddenly appearing on television, uh, you know, leading to the whole scare that, oh, television is going to start taking people out of movie theaters. The, it, the main part of the PRC story is that no one was around to renew the copyright for almost many of the titles in the library, almost all of them. And like Detour, they fell into the public domain. And that's really the main part of Detour's history that is the reason that it has looked so poorly and sounded so poorly in so many different 16 millimeter prints, VHS tapes, DVDs, internet streams. Um, you know, the sad history of public domain films is that they are widely available, but the source material is all a copy of a copy of a copy. And if you've ever made a Xerox of a fax, you know how the visual quality starts to break down. Um, and, and the film just looks horrible by the time it gets to the sixth or seventh or eighth generation. Okay, so Edgar Ulmer comes to Hollywood to work for F.W. Murnau on Sunrise as what? An art director, set decorator? Set decorator, I believe, yeah. He directs one film for a major studio, which is The Black Cat with Karloff and Lugosi for Universal. Otherwise, pretty much uh, is a yeoman director in the low-budget realm, uh, working for a lot of these kind of Poverty Row studios on other quirky things like Yiddish-language films. Uh, when Detour came out, did anyone pay attention to it, or was it just the kind of thing that's in theaters one week and out the next? When we screened it here in Los Angeles, um, Ariane Ulmer Sipes, uh, Edgar Ulmer's daughter, talked about the fact that uh, he was pleased with how positively reviewed it was, um, that it was one of his, his films that got good notices uh, at the time in both trade publications. And she mentioned that... Uh, and I think it was even reviewed in, in mainstream publications. Yes, it was. So that was part of how I think that it began to get a reputation from its initial release. Um, but again, because it was on the bottom half of Double Bills, it wasn't widely promoted or uh, or seen. And, and as you said, Ulmer's career continued on as... Uh, you know, his reputation as a craftsman and a yeoman of a filmmaker who could always get something 
decent in that was releasable <laughs> and under budget uh, just increased with the uh, performance of, of Detour uh, financially and critically. So did it take off, uh, you know, did it get some attention just from being on TV then continually? Is that kind of what kept it alive, you think? No, what I think, I think that after it was released initially, that it was part of, it, it's certainly part of the films that were discussed by um, the Cahiers du Cinema group as they were creating the, the term film noir and, and creating the films that would form the canon for it as part of the first wave of analysis of what film noir really was. Um, and it's, it's always a part of discussions of, of noir. And so I think that that's what sustained its reputation and kept it in distribution through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s as film noir enthusiasts continued to discover and rediscover it and and find in it really kind of like the almost really super reduced down true essence of what a film noir could be yeah i mean that seems to me to be the thing with it it has so few resources that it's just pure style yeah i mean and 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 also from a storytelling point of view yes they they had to pad out a few things to get to a running time (laughs) that was of sufficient length to even qualify for the bottom half of a double bill because we're talking about a 67 minute movie here so there's this strange you know montage of when he's calling long distance of operator you know stock footage of operators changing uh cables and things like that but for uh, but for other than those parts and and i would guess the musical numbers there's no fat on the narrative bone of detour i mean every scene is essential in moving the story forward because it has to there there was no time and no money and no budget to to have any excess at all and so like i said you have this sort of distillation to the essence of a noir story in it well and that was what was funny i was just reading something that said the original script was 144 pages and you know the the rule of thumb is a page a minute. So this was a two and a half hour movie. What uh, what all went on in Detour at two and a half hours? I wonder. I've never seen the script. Have you, Heather? No. All right. Well, there's there's, there's got to be a lot of hitchhiking, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of uh, you know I don't know maybe Odysseus like moments uh, you know leading up to when he actually meets the 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 ride that's going to get him into trouble and then the girl who's going to uh, get him in even more trouble. Huh. Well, now we have a, an area for future research. Uh, what was what was Martin Goldsmith's original two-and-a-half-hour vision for, for Detour? Um, all right, well, let's talk about um, the restoration. I mean, how did, how did the two of you get brought into it? Well, I guess I'll start and then I'll let Heather uh, take it from there. Heather and I have been working uh, as partners on restoration projects for the last uh, nine years while she was at the Academy. So uh, we partnered first on the restoration of the life and death of Colonel Blimp uh, in 2009-10 and then um, Marcel O'Full's four-and-a-half-hour-plus documentary about uh, the Nuremberg trials in the Vietnam War called The Memory of Justice. Um, and we worked together on a restoration of the Lewis Milestone, 1931, the front page. The, the 
the reason that the Academy Film Archive was involved in the restoration is because uh, Arian Ulmerseip um, began bringing film elements of his of his work to the archive to create a collection of Edgar Ulmer films. She formed a nonprofit corporation, the Edgar G. Ulmer Preservation Corporation, to purchase elements that she was, you know, finding in online auctions and from other collectors, um, and was also getting grants to to try to do preservation work. Um, and she is just a force of nature. She is so passionate about seeing that every one of her father's surviving films gets preserved. Um, and we just were so happy that she was doing so much work and bringing so many film elements to the archive. But with every film that she was able to acquire or that we were able to work together to bring from you know, another distributor or another partial owner, um, she would keep saying to Heather and I, well, what about detour? That's really the only one that I still know needs to be done and done properly. And this has been a conversation we've been having with Arianne for uh, almost 20 years. It was just under 20 years that we've been working together. Um, And so it really was about 10 years ago in 2008 that Heather started to do a worldwide search for every element that existed on Detour um, and has been at it ever since, wouldn't you say, Heather? Yes. So um, as part of the search process, one of the first things I I delved into were the various Blu-ray and DVD and 16-millimeter copies that were circulating on Detour. Um, and as Mike mentioned, because of the public domain status, there were multiple releases of Detour on Blu-ray and DVD. And as I watched all of these various um, releases, uh, it, be- it became easy to discern patterns between the various releases. And it was um, uh, kind of revealing that there's only a handful of, of film elements that survive on Detour. Of course, the camera native is lost, um, but you can see throughout these releases that, oh, that, that DVD um, and this DVD come from the same source and, and so on. Um, so kind of learning the lineage of, of those releases was important. And then um, another thing that we did was reach out to um, the world to all of the film archives around the world, uh, sending a message to the International Federation of Film Archives or FIOF um, to see what archives held anything uh, on Detour. We were we seek out 60 millimeter prints, 35 millimeter prints, and obviously between 16 and 35, there's more resolution in 35, so we wanted to seek out as much 35 material as we could, and uh, we uncovered some material uh, from the Cinematheque Royale de Belgique in Belgium, and UCLA Film and Television Archives, and the Museum of Modern Art, uh, the Cinematheque Française in Paris, all held uh, various material on detour. So it was really a matter of gathering together those elements and inspecting them and determining um, similarities between them and uh, the lineage of those elements as well. 
Did you see any difference in any of the cuts, or was it just a matter of whose material was in better shape? A lot of the elements were very similar. Like, there wasn't, like, one one release that, oh, here's this one mysterious shot that all the others don't have. It was more about the condition of the source material. And uh, a lot of these elements have been through the ringer, really. They... A lot of Blu-ray and DVDs were sourced, sourced from 16 elements, 16 millimeter elements, and they have been projected multiple times over in their life. And so the Blu-rays and DVDs, you could see jump cuts where they had lost a frame or two. Um, and also um, there were some elements that had built-in nitrate deterioration, um, others that had water damage built into them. So it was more a matter of the condition. Um, and a lot of films that are in the public domain, like Mike mentioned, um, aren't always in the best condition. Yeah, and that was the, when you say cuts, that was the, the point I was going to make is that a lot of the sources were incomplete. Like Heather was saying, sometimes a few frames and sometimes entire lines of dialogue or dialogue exchanges were missing. Um, and that was the problem with the source that we initially considered to be the one that we could hopefully be the primary source and that was a duplicate safety negative and optical track negative that came from the Museum of Modern Arts collection um, but that was it was in good physical condition and the element probably a 35 nitrate print that was used to make it was in good condition at the time the dupe was struck it just was missing a lot of frames um, that when you have a jump cut, it just takes you out of the movie. I mean, modern audiences aren't used to having whole lines of dialogue or words clipped and everything. And so what we really wanted to do was to say we were going to build the restoration around the 35-millimeter safety negative from the MoMA collection and see if we could find just these little missing chunks that we could fill in from different sources around the world. Um, and that's what Heather was researching for for all of those years. So did you do that or did you do something else then? Oh, we did something very well, the, different. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the time that we started this search, um, it was still in the era of film-to-film -film preservation, so the chemical preservation. And, you know, on the surface, um, the, the element that stood out was and the nitrate print from Belgium, from the Cinematheque Royale de Belgique. Um, but at that time, it was it was not even an option for a photochemical film-to-film -film preservation because that element had uh, has subtitles etched into the film, and so it was an element that we at the time regretted. Like, oh, I think this could be something we could use to pick up material to supplement uh, for the MoMA uh, negative, but it just wasn't an option. And so it, it really was sort of the timing of moving from film to film preservation and having digital technologies and capabilities to allow us um, in, in 2018 to revisit this element to consider it as a potential uh, source. Yeah, I mean, I would add that it was really hiding in plain sight. Everyone knew that a 35-millimeter nitrate print of Detour existed at 
the Cinematheque Royale, but like Heather said, how could you consider a print that has both French and Flemish subtitles uh. burned into it <laughs> as a preservation source? Um, and so we asked our colleagues there to make a scan of it to see if we could just pick up frames that maybe didn't have or happened to have subtitles that could fill in the jump cuts of the MoMA element, hoping that maybe we could just cobble something together and that, that didn't have subtitles present in it. Um, and instead of just sending us tests that we had initially asked for, our very, very generous colleagues, including the director of the Cinematheque Royale de Belgique, Nicola Mazzanti, agreed to just make a 4K scan of the entire nitrate print um, and sent that file over to us so we could look at the at everything that existed in that print. And that was something that I don't think Heather had ever seen before, or I had seen before. Well, like you said before, that it was probably one of the best days um, for for us as film <laughs> preservationists to, to see this um, a digital scan from a nitrate print one generation away from the camera negative and despite the subtitles there was um, incredible sharpness and range in the black and white um, it was just a gorgeous it was not perfect. It was also, you know, it had been projected many times, so it had some scratches and, and some some jump cuts um, uh, and the subtitles, but it really blew us away when we saw it for the first time projected. September 29th, 2017, right, Heather? <laughs> yes. You, you celebrate <laughs> so everything with shifted. We should, yeah. We should put some kind of like, uh, you know, calendar item. So every September 29th, we just uh, there's an alert that goes out that you and I have to, uh, I don't know, have a have a toast of bourbon or something, you know, detoury to drink that day, Heather. Yes. But no, everything shifted after we saw this scan. We realized that this print was better than anything that. It, either of us had ever seen on Detour before. This was going to be the basis of the restoration. The Cinematheque Royale de Belgique agreed to it right away, and the the restoration shifted from you know trying to cobble and fill these missing frames to, okay, how do we use as much of this nitrate print from Brussels as we can, and how do we take the subtitles out of the image in a way that is not going to leave any artifacts or be distracting for viewers in any way. And luckily we found an amazing partner in Roundabout Entertainment, a restoration facility here in Los Angeles who came up with some very creative solutions to get rid of the subtitles in a way that would be unobtrusive and almost invisible. Well, so I'm assuming it, that it is essentially what people like you have been doing with, you know, dirt in a frame for a long time, which is if the dirt is in front of the wall in the shot, well, the previous frame has that wall without the dirt in the shot. So you can just kind of take a bit of that and put it over it. 
uh, or or replace it with that. Is we that... didn't really have that luxury with the the Belgium nitrate because of the the subtitles were etched across um, several feet, um, hundreds of frames, and so we couldn't pick up. Um, especially if there's movement in the scene and so the background is changing or the person is moving. Um, it wasn't as, as easy as um, going to the previous frame and pick, picking up those pixels and copying them over. Um, this required uh, a, a couple of different options, which we uh, tested. One was um, actually hand digitally painting the subtitles out of the frame. So a a digital artist would um, use their expertise to to paint out the letters. And and those results look really good, but it's incredibly um, labor-intensive. It's a lot of time. Um, It takes a lot of time to paint out a single letter, let alone... And it's expensive! Yeah. (laughs) And it's expensive. Um, and so the other option that we looked at was um, a technique called compositing, where if the, the frame that's subtitled in the Belgium nitrate existed in the MoMA duplicate negative, then we could take that frame from the MoMA element and sort of marry it over the Belgium nitrate to kind of merge the two frames together to hide uh, the subtitles. I'm I'm simplifying it uh, because Roundabout um, did incredible um, techniques of compositing to remove them, so I'm simplifying what they did. Uh, But that's essentially the the process. And so we watched tests of both of those, and while uh, they were both, both of the, comp- the composite and the painting looked great um, as far as cost. We felt that we had to take um, an approach of whenever the frames existed in the UCLA negative, we would composite with the Belgian nitrate. And then in the instances where the MoMA element is missing those frames because of a jump cut or deterioration, and then it's completely gone, we would uh, have roundabout paint out those particular frames. So when you see the final result, basically the shots that have any substantial movement in the frame or camera movement, those are the ones that had to be hand-painted. But luckily, there were so many shots in Detour that are static, like of our two protagonists driving, where the frames, there's not a lot of camera movement and not a lot of movement within the frame. Those are the ones that we were able to use the compositing technique. And it seems to me that the final result is, is fairly seamless and we're all really happy with how it turned out. Thanks to these two, these two techniques that we, we tested and, and turned out to work perfectly. 
Yeah, I've only seen the trailer so far, but I mean, it just it looks amazing. Um, it looks it looks like more money than D two ever actually cost. The restoration definitely took a lot longer than the production did. I'm sure. So there's no two ways about that. <laughs> yeah. Now, it seems to me the hard thing about that is has got to be any any two prints like that are going to have subtly different tonal qualities in some way. So somebody had to be fiddling dials with a pretty fine hand to get that pasted in part to match frame after frame. One of the great things about the UCLA, or I'm sorry, the Museum of Modern Art duplicate negative is that uh, it was made in 1982. Um, and it was very well made. And so even though it's technically one additional generation away from the nitrate source, uh, the nitrate print um, in Brussels, it actually, um, as far as compositing, um, worked quite well. We had also done some tests compositing um, frames from a 16 millimeter print with the Belgium nitrate. And you can it doesn't work as well because, um, of course, there's less resolution and a 16-millimeter frame to begin with. And then when you merge it with something that's incredibly sharp, it, you just, the results weren't um, that great. So we're really fortunate that um, a lot of effort um, was taken in 1982 to make this beautiful duplicate negative that really allowed us to, to composite it uh, quite seamlessly with uh, the Belgium nitrate. Of course, everybody always talks about these things from a visual standpoint. But yeah, I, I was wondering all along, what what survived on audio? Did you have any sort of audio elements or is it just whatever tracks were on, whatever prints you had? Yeah, we basically combined the three primary sources. So um, the Brussels print was captured in Brussels. We captured um, the MoMA negative and uh, two 16 millimeter sources. Um, and that actually became one of the last pieces of the puzzle that, that Heather had to, to put together, that um, the Brussels print showed us that there was one shot missing at the end that we didn't have. Based on the audio, right, Heather? And then there was a visual cue, too, that we knew that there was that we were missing something at the end of reel two? Yeah, so there was, at the head of reel two, there was um, a word missing. Well, there's actually uh, something missing at the head of two and at the towards the end of two. Um, there's, <clears throat> at the head of two, there's a word, wow, um, that you see, um, that you see and Savage saying, and if we don't have the sound for it, um, and then at the end of reel two, there were a couple words missing. Um, and this is not too uncommon. There, that head and tail of reels, oftentimes in projection, the, the most common area to get beat up is at the head or the tail of a reel as it's being threaded up or taken off the projector. Um, but luckily, the uh, we had a the 35 millimeter print from this, the Cinematheque Francaise, um, that was um, a really helpful source for those particular um, audio sections. And um, we were fortunate that the, the Cinematheque 
contributed their prints to the restoration as well. So you were able to find those bits. You didn't have to go looking for individual phonemes in the entire movie or anything like that. We got most of the word wow. Um, It's not all there. So uh, John Polito at Audio Mechanics, um, who uh, did the audio restoration, he tried to stretch that wow out (laughs) as much as possible. Um, but when there's nothing there to work with, you can only do, you know, the best that you can. So you can, you get the hints of wow um, in that, in the restoration. As I'm sure I will have mentioned in the intro to this, it's going to be a Criterion Blu-ray and, and DVD. But uh, what else is going to happen to the film now that there's this new, improved, you know, pretty much definitive version of it? Well, I think that, the most important thing for Ariane Ulmer Sipes, who was the, the source of all of this work and, and passion and kept Heather and I and the Academy Film Archive behind the project for 10 years is, is that yes, there, there will be something in the, in an archive that is definitive of her father's work and will always be available. That's the most important thing. It's great that it's going to be out on, uh, criterion and and out in a in the world in a way that that's the conundrum of 21st century restoration work this is probably going to look better than and sound <laughs> better than it, it did even to original audiences and that's a whole nother conversation and um you know discussion about how the work that film restoration and preservation is doing these days but I think you're right. I mean, anyone is going to be able to, to to see Detour in as good a version as it's ever been available. Um, and I think that people will. And I think that that continued fascination with the film noir genre is going to continue and be studied and analyzed. And at the end of the day, at the end of each of those analysis, Detour is going to remain one of the absolute pillars of the canon of the genre because it's 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 just got everything. And it was made on so little with so much, um, you know, part of the genre already in its bones that it will it will survive. And it's just great that it's going to continue to be out in the world and the best form that I think that it could be. And I think it's important to note that this restoration um, really took a village of people um, to to realize the, 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 the results of this. Um, we had so many incredible partners. Of course, the Film Foundation and the George Lucas Family Foundation, who were with us from the beginning, wanting uh, this film preserved. And of course, the Cinematheque Real de Belgique and Museum of Modern Art, uh, the Cinematheque Francaise Roundabout for the picture restoration, audio mechanics for the audio restoration, Photochem for the, the 35 millimeter prints that will now um, circulate of this restoration. It's um, an important um, note to um, highlight 
so many people came together to make this restoration happen. Just remember who's boss around here. If you shut up and don't give me any arguments, you'll have nothing to worry about. I'm the lucky one. I can't Even if you did tell the cops I was in on it with you, what could they do to me? Thanks to my guests, Jack Feekston, Mike Pogorzelski, and Heather Linville. Links to Becky Sharp from Kino Lorber, Detour from Criterion, and other stuff we talked about will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and to leave a rating or a review at iTunes to help other people find out about us too. Thanks. How did I get in a mess like this?